See if I can do this gracefully. We have four scripture readings this morning. The first is from Psalms chapter 34, verses 11 through 14. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The next one is from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The next is from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And finally, from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 22 through 24. But prove yourself doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Good morning, everyone. The song? We have audio? Test, test. Screen. Yep. Welcome, everyone. First, uh, my sincerest thanks to Brother Brett. I kind of put him through a marathon there with four scripture readings, but uh, they all go together for this morning's lesson. And before I start, I want to extend two statements to the group here. First and foremost, know that you're all loved. The Lord loves all of you, regardless of where you are at, you, you are at in your life, who you are today, who you were yesterday, and who you will be tomorrow. Know that you're loved by Jesus. And secondly, the Master will come, and He will come soon. If you consider even Revelation at the end of Revelation, that is the prayer. Come quickly, Master. Yes, and amen. So let's start. Today's lesson is going to be on doing or to do not, and what the differences are. And when we think of Christianity as a whole, what does it mean? You see, Christianity itself is to do. It's not just to hear. In fact, if you consider most Christians today, all they do is hear. And you might wonder, well, that's a broad brush because there are a lot of Christians in this world. But we will take a look at the differences between what God has expected in ancient times and what God still expects today as we go together. So to do or to do not, let's see if this little clicker thing works here. Uh, I'm not used to PowerPoint. Um, if I aim it up there, no, where do I aim it, Joe? At the computer? It's not picking it up. Uh-oh, are we, it's on. 
No battery? That's going backwards. Okay, there we go. I got it now, I think. One more. Okay. Do or do not. So the scripture readings, as we've gone through, we have the book, the reference from the book of Psalms, Micah, Galatians, and James. What's interesting here is when we think of all of these together, they're not different at all. They are written by four different men. The terms are very similar throughout their ages in history. We have King David, who writes the psalm for us about a thousand years before Jesus. We have the prophet Micah about 750 years before Jesus. And then we have Paul to the Galatians. And then we have James, Jesus' brother. And we're going to take a look at those today together. And I want to talk a little bit about their character and the message they're delivering before we kind of round out everything. So David, who is David? Well, we know David <clears throat> as this famed musician, right? David was famous for playing music. We often see in the Psalms that he is the music director for the choir, simply the choir of the temple when you think of it. But also, he's a famed statesman. He's a mighty warrior of God, and he is the king of Israel. Now, that's interesting because Israel, we know, had several kings, and when we think of the king of kings, we think of our Lord Jesus. But here we have David, and David starts off by describing how we can share faith, how we can teach each other faith, and how we can show that our faith is alive. And how does David do that? Well, first, before we talk about David, is we have to understand the difference between faith that is alive and faith that is dead. Now, you'll see on the PowerPoint that I have a reference to James chapter 2, verse 24. But let's ask ourselves the question together. Do you know the difference between faith that is alive and faith that is dead? You could say, well, Nick, I can see over your shoulder. I can see the answers. You've given it to us. But the question is, do you actually believe that? Because when you consider Christianity, and you consider how Christianity makes it to us in this room today, remember, we're 2,000 years from the event of Christ on the cross, right? The most powerful event in all of recorded history. We're 2,000 years from that. And faith starts from there and emanates forward. Remember, God tells us in his Bible that his faith would come from Zion, his faith would come from Jerusalem, right? And we understand that something has to be done in order that faith must get to us. And I'm going to tell you something. It's not just Jesus doing it. Because there is a tendency in America for people to think that God will do it for me. And that's laziness. Now, I'm not saying we're lazy in this room. But think about it for a moment. If people expect God to do the heavy lifting in our life, how could we ever show back to him that our faith is alive and real? And we'll take a look at that together. So faith that is alive, it's the type of faith that will justify a person because it shows the faith is breathing and it is working just as God has ordained. But what about dead faith? That's the kind of faith where we say, I believe, and then does nothing. Let's take some practical examples before we jump in. And you've often heard me say this together. If you say, husbands, if you say you love your wife, and you never show her love, do you actually love her? In your mind, you might be saying, yes, I do, because I profess with my lips. Or what about this? Your boss gives you a task at work for those who work, 
or perhaps your parents expect you to do a chore for the younger people in the audience. And you say you will go and do it, but you never do it. Maybe the first five or six times your boss just lets it slide, but that builds up a negative rapport with your boss, and he's not going to believe you anymore. In fact, your word will become worthless, and that is exactly what happens to the person who hears the word of God and does absolutely nothing about it. When you look back in the scriptures, everyone with faith in the Bible shows exactly how their faith is alive, working, and how, when you consider it very closely, how it justifies them. So I mentioned David, Micah, Paul, and James. And I do apologize, the little letters that don't show up nicely here, that's the scripture readings that Brother Brett had read for us today. So two unique testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, one common perspective. Today we're looking at faith and what it means to do versus to do not. David, I mentioned he was a famed musician, a mighty warrior of God, a great statesman and the king of Israel. But when our brother read for us this morning, what was the key words of David? His statement was very bold. He says, little children, I will teach you. And what does he teach them? I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Well, if you remember in Proverbs and throughout most of the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what does David also say by not saying it, but by his word choice, he shows it. He says, I will not teach you about worldly knowledge in place of the Lord. And that is key. So let me expand upon that for a little bit. David says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And while you think on that, David could have taught them how to draw the sword in war. He was a very brilliant tactician in war. He could have taught them how to run the state of Israel. In other words, the day-to-day governmental business of the nation of Israel. He could have taught them to play the harp or the lyre, but he did no such thing. Instead, little, little young ones, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And that's important because if you teach the fear of the Lord, then whatever you learn in your life makes sense. But if you learn everything in life and you never have the fear of the Lord, it's a wasted life. Think about it. Think of all the worldly knowledge we have today, and I'm going to ask simple questions. It might hit home for some, it's not disrespectful. But for all the knowledge we have in the world today, can we cure cancer? For all the knowledge that we have in the world today, can we resurrect the dead? We can't. And if we were to teach on and expand upon worldly knowledge, but never have the Lord, it is empty. But there's one small caveat. You can have worldly knowledge, but if you have the fear of the Lord, then it's perfectly fine. Because when you consider it, if you have the fear of the Lord and you have worldly knowledge, you begin to understand how we get the very gospel we have today. What about Michael? Micah, sorry. Micah, the wonderful prophet. His name is interesting because it's believed that Micah comes from Micaiah, which means the one who is like Jehovah the one who is like God Almighty. And when he delivers his terms, it's interesting, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, very popular in Scripture, probably the most abused in Scripture when you think of it. A lot of people will run there to talk about divorce. Okay, fair enough. 
A lot of people will run there and say, ha, see, this is where God is attacking sacrifices. Well, if God is attacking sacrifices, why would he have required it under the law? And why would he require it from his own son? But what does Micah really say? He shows us what God requires of man. Eight years ago, I preached a sermon on this, of what God requires of man. What does God require of man? Justice. Pursue justice. That's not just in your personal life. That's everywhere. Be just in all that you do and you say, and all that even you believe. And to pursue kindness. Now, kindness is interesting. Kindness is not the same as me walking up and shaking your hand or giving you a hug. That is kindness. But this type of kindness is deeper. This is the kind of kindness that the Lord expects and that the Lord actually gives us each and every day. It's a sense of loyalty. And as Micah goes through here and he warns the people, he points out that the very full acceptance of walking with God means that you do it by pursuing, pursuing justice, that you act with kindness and loyalty to both the cause of God and your fellow man, and then you can show that you truly believe in God. And it's interesting here, at the bottom you'll see that to do good both to our fellow man, man, woman, and child in this room, strangers, out, outdoors, if you will, God points out something very key. He says, look, I know you're going to have a hard time. I know it's going to be very difficult because even there are circumstances that make it impossible for you to do so. But that's where his grace comes in. It covers the shortcomings. Now, we had a beautiful lesson last week from our brother Paul. He talked about if sin is present, we should just let sin do its thing because grace will abound more. And we know that's false. Grace covers the shortcomings because there are times in our lives where we will do our best, we will make consideration for what the Lord says, and we can still get it wrong. We, we, we are fault. We're full of fault. We are full of error. But grace covers the shortcomings. God loves us so much, you think of when he sent Jesus. That literally is his grace. We understand that from Titus. Grace has appeared to all men. And what about the beloved Apostle Paul? Well, Paul is interesting because Paul is the thinking man, if you will, of religion. He is the great mind. He's the great philosopher. Look at who he goes up against in the New Testament. Paul is an interesting character because he describes himself as the chief sinners, the Pharisee of Pharisees, but that he is able to go toe-to-toe with anybody. He's a very brilliant man. But Paul encourages us. He says we must always seek to do good, not to grow weary in doing so. But there's one other thing. When Paul says that we must do good, we have to especially do good to Christians. And that's huge. That means... If your friend needs help, and your brother in Christ that maybe you've known for a year needs help, there is a priority. Now, it doesn't mean you can neglect the other guy, but it means that you have to love the brethren so much that you would be willing to prioritize their well-being even above your own. Let me give you a practical example. Your friend wants to move next week, and you commit to Friday. But let's say one of the older members in the congregation 
needs to go to the hospital because they're in trouble. That might be easy for you to say. It's like, well, this person is dying and sick. But what if the person needed to be picked up from the hospital? And what if they could only tell you that I'll be ready between 12 and 5 p.m. and maybe they only get out at 7 p.m.? The point I'm trying to make here is we have to especially do good to each other. That does not mean we neglect our prior commitments. It does not mean we treat our friends or even people that are strange to us, strangers, with lesser feeling, if you will. But it means we must be prepared to go out of our way to show good favor to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And Paul says we should not grow weary from doing good. It doesn't matter where we are. If you talk to my father, he can tell you how much I really don't like injustice in America. And there's a lot of it. And I'm not talking about social justice or racial inequality or income this or that you see on TV. Literally talking about oppression. But we can't grow weary from doing it. It will tire us. You think of our Lord. Jesus, did he not say the birds of the sky have nests? But for the Son of Man, where can he lay his head? That should touch your heart because that means Jesus walked and walked and walked some more. And he couldn't truly find rest. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to find rest from all the hard work he was doing. But you have to imagine for all the miracles he had done, for all the attempts on his own life, he had nowhere to safely go. You see, if we get in a little bit of trouble somewhere, we're pretty fortunate. We can actually skip town when you think of it. We get a little bit of trouble here, maybe some employers don't like our name, we can go to the next town, and as long as they don't know our name, we're okay. Not so with the Lord. Wherever he went, not only did he always do good, but he couldn't rest from his labor. But the point was not for Jesus to rest, of course. The point is, you should do good, not grow weary, and you will one day reap, because the Lord will provide a bountiful supply in response. And what about James, the brother of Jesus? James, we know he had mocked his brother. Concerning the Passover, in fact, the brothers did not believe Jesus while Jesus lived with them. Jesus would have shown them firsthand the miracles. You think of the miracle at Cana, James is present. And he doesn't believe his brother, not until his death. And James, he's like the dean of faith. For those who are in college or about to enter college or those who have recently gone through college, you know what a dean is. Very important in the world of academia. James is literally the dean of the Christian faith. And the brother of our Lord, he says, look, I will give you two pictures of every man and every woman, and I will show you what they're like. And we'll go into it in a little bit here. James illustrates that there are two types of people in this example. The example is, again, faith. There are those who do nothing. And there are those who know to do something but simply forget. And he's not calling them forgetful. It's worse. So what does James talk about when we consider in James? The man who does nothing, he shows that hearing is not enough. Because the man who does nothing has heard. He's come, he's sat in the auditorium, he's met with the congregants, he hears the word, and he closes his eyes and he thinks, I'm good. I've participated in the Lord's Supper, I've given this day, I've sang praises, I've joined in prayer, I've said hello to my brother, I sit in the audience, I hear the sermon, 
I close my eyes and I think I'm okay. James is actually telling us this is only half the way. Think about it. If you hear the word of God, every aspect of the word of God is go and do something about it. Go and show that it's alive. Go and show that you've received the word of Christ our Lord and you will go through and keep his commandments. You cannot keep his commandments by filling the pew on Sunday morning. (laughs) Our Lord showed us this every single day of his life. In fact, think of back to the miracle of Cana. And he says to his mother, he says, woman, what do we have to do? It's not my time. He's not being disrespectful to his mother. But everything our Lord did from day one until the very end showed his perfect faith with the Father. And James says, look, if you hear and you do nothing, you're only halfway there and you're not going to make it. Let's ask it another way. For those who like sports racing, maybe you like car racing or horse racing, if the car or the horse only goes halfway around the track, do they complete the race? Somebody smart might say, well, if everyone else gets disqualified, I would be like, yeah, that's true. He still has to cross the finish line. What about the man who forgets? This is interesting. James talks about the man who forgets as simply the one who goes to a mirror, looks at himself, sees all of the imperfections on him. Maybe his hair is disheveled. Maybe he's got dirt on his face or chocolate from cake or something. And he forgets about it. Now, you have to remember this. In ancient times, mirrors were a little bit different than today. Today, we have a nice pane of glass. Glass was present, but extremely rare, especially in a mirror back then. But they would have a polished form of metal to reflect what you would see. The image through a mirror back then wouldn't be as clear as a mirror is today. In fact, you can buy a cheap little Chinese makeup mirror for maybe two bucks, right? It's very expensive to get a mirror back then because of the effort to not only procure the metal, but to refine it and polish it so it could reflect enough before it. So these crude reflections of this man, he sees a problem on his face, he sees maybe his hair should have been done up a little nicer, whoops, and um, he forgets about it. He's like, I should do something, but I do nothing, and moves on to the next task. Maybe he had to go meet somebody in the town square, or he had to go and pay a debt in the marketplace. This man hears and reflects before neglecting to fix and improve anything. And that's pretty common. For the ladies in the audience, for those who wear makeup, and I'm not condemning makeup at all, do you not take out your mirror and look? Maybe you have a blemish, or maybe your makeup isn't adjusted. You generally correct it right away, because you don't want to look different before people, right? But James is illustrating here for us that the man who looks in the mirror and then forgets within minutes. So, good faith versus bad faith. And I'll have to remember this next time. I'll have to use bigger text. But the tiny little text that I can barely read standing here, it says, biblical examples of good faith in action. So if I were to ask you today, where would you go in Scripture to find faith? Some people might say Hebrews chapter 11, and you would be correct. But what if I told you the whole Bible has examples of good faith? In fact, far more examples of good faith than bad faith. Even in the times where Jesus is getting mad at the Pharisees, every single example that you can see why is because people know and ought to know what good faith is. So, 
Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, if you can, please, for a moment. And just scan over. I'm not going to read them all line by line, but if you want a little hint, look at the term by faith for those who have that in their translation. By faith, we understand. By faith, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, so on and so forth. There's at least 19 references to it. In fact, when we consider what the Hebrew author says, he says, look at verse 32, And what more then shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets. And look down in verse 39 at the beginning. And all of these having gained approval through their faith. Rahab the harlot, the walls of Jericho, there's references to they and there's references to we. By faith we understand. Think of it. We understand our Lord through faith. By faith they had crossed through the Red Sea when Moses had parted it. All of that is faith in action. They're doing something. Now, when you think of doing something, not all things are the same thing. That's a mouthful. To act on your faith, to show that your faith is alive, you have to do various things. It's not the same thing over and over again. And it's not just ritualistic wor worship when you think of it. Again, we go back to the example. If you tell your husband or your wife that you love them and never show them that, you don't actually love them. You may have convinced yourself. You may vehemently argue the point to the very end. But unless you show that love, it's just not there. And so the triumph of faith, all of the examples that we have together, is that they are doing something in service to the Lord. Sarah, for example, barren woman, in fact, she had laughed and mocked God. I'm barren. I cannot conceive. You're nuts. And what did she do? She conceived. Because her attitude had changed. And for ourselves today in this room and where we go, else out, where we go out elsewhere in the world, so too can it be the same. We might have a sour attitude one day, but we can change, and we can only change if we work at it. What about the walls of Jericho? That's interesting. They've tried a lot of scientific experiments to prove or disprove it, if you will. But they had encircled it for seven days, and they had shouted, and the walls had fell. This is a very common understanding, even outside of Jewish teachings and Christianity. Archaeologically, they understand what has happened here. They just don't believe because they lack faith. What about Joseph? When he was di dying, he maintained the faith. He shared a blessing, and he even worshipped by leaning on his cane. Now, no disrespect to our old people here, but think of it. Joseph is dying. He's leaning on his staff to worship to his bitter end. You think of King David. And he made a lot of mistakes. What did he do on his deathbed? Does anyone remember? Did he not give instructions to carry out acts of faith and acts of kingship prior to his last breath? You see, the point here is not to call people out or to 
have them think, wow, I'm being criticized here and you don't even know me. But to show you that the examples of faith in Scripture, regardless of circumstance, and we're going to look at probably the most beautiful examples at the end, that regardless of the circumstance, none of them had an excuse. And I will say this, in America, we offer the biggest of excuses. And it's tremendously bad. We think we might be oppressed because the politician we have in office taxes us too hard. And don't get me wrong, we are totally taxed. Or they might say we can or cannot do, or we must and we have to, or there'll be consequence. But let me tell you this. Would you show up to church if you knew somebody was going to potentially shoot your family? Or maybe cut off their hands? Or maybe steal your livestock? I, I know we're not so much an agrarian society anymore, but some of us do have farms. Would you still show up and worship? They do it in Africa. And they did it in the Old and New Testaments. We, we talked about how much Paul was beaten wherever he went. Beaten, left for dead, stoned, rotting in jail when you think of it. That didn't deter him. There's always a reward at the end. And for our faith today, when we think of our own faith, if we don't grow weary, like Paul has said to the Galatians, if we don't grow weary of doing good, believe me, the rewards that Jesus promises us is greater than anything we can ever imagine. And so you think here, as we had read in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 39, Everyone gained approval through faith by showing their faith is alive, by showing their faith is working, and showing their faith is good. But what about bad faith? And the biblical examples surrounding bad faith. Well, you actually don't need the Bible to show bad faith. We can see it every day around us. And let me show you how. Bad faith exemplified. There are three caricatures, if you will, of bad faith and how the person acts upon them. The first person is that they will hear the word and they don't understand it, which is okay. We have to help them study. They have to show eagerness. But if they don't understand it and they don't work at it, what happens to it? The faith is simply taken away. It dwindles into nothing. It's taken away. And we're going to look at Bible examples here shortly about it. The second is those who hear the word and they know what to do about it. And they even sometimes know how to do it, but they do nothing about it. Remember the example of James talking about the man who looks in the mirror and he becomes a forgetful hearer and an ineffectual doer. In other words, they don't do and they totally forget. You see, these people will do nothing about it and they lose out to life's distractions let me tell you the number one distraction in America, it's not television. It's, I gotta go and do this for my job. That's the number one distraction. Take it from me firsthand. Uh, years ago, I had people waiting on me for a family meal at uh, Thanksgiving. And I told them I'll be home in the afternoon because usually we just wait for the go-ahead to get home. And I showed up about an hour late. I made a terrible choice in the matter. I could have actually not gone into the afternoon. I could have actually left in the morning and I would have been okay. I had prioritized work, thinking that work was more important than an obligation I had to Christians. And that'll stick with me forever. 
It's, it's sad that it happened, but it's also a good reminder in a way. Because life's distractions, there's too many of them. And thirdly, the people that hear the word and they know what to do and even how to do it, but they begin to make excuses. Think of it this way. When Jesus starts sharing the news of the kingdom, when he shares his gospel message with the Israelites, at the very beginning, a lot of people offer him excuses, and we'll take a look at those today. What were some of the excuses? I'm just married. I need a year with my wife, please. You see, the Jews had a wonderful law that if you got married, you were exempt from every core duty, including military duty for the king, for up to two years. Often it was just one year. And you could spend time with your wife. And it was a good thing in a way because that's when they would have children, or at least attempt to have children. Or what about the farmer who buys a piece of land and says, I have this new ox and I want to try it out. In America today, it's, uh, I bought a new car or I bought a boat. And you might laugh and say, well, Nick, we don't do any of that. Well, what about if you start work next week and you say, you know, I can't listen to the sermon today or do anything. I can't help you out because I've got to prepare for my job next week. That happens every day in America. So I mentioned we would look at some examples here. Let's take a key look at those examples. Let's look at the first type of person, please. Matthew chapter 13. If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 13, remember this is the type of person who will hear the word and they do not even understand it. And the Lord will tell us about them in two key places. Matthew chapter 13, and we'll look together beginning in the third verse. Jesus says, And he spoke many things to them in parables, and he says, Behold, the sower had gone out to sow, and as he sowed, some of the seeds fell by the road, and the birds and came and ate them up. And if you look down at verse 19, there's a little more here. Jesus declares, he says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, of God that is, and he doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, which has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom the seed was sown on beside the road. This is your first type of bad faith. This is the person, like I said, they hear the word and they do not understand it and they do nothing about it. Eventually they're going to lose it. What about the second type of example? The next two examples come from the book of Luke. Please turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and we'll look beginning in the 57th verse. Luke chapter 9. The second is the type of person who will hear the word, they know what to do, and even when to do it, but they do nothing about it, and they immediately feel that the next pressing issue in their life takes precedence. Now, this is not the forgetful person. This is the distracted person that places life's priorities behind doing good. Luke chapter 9, look beginning in the 57th verse. And as they were going along the road, someone had said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus had said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first permit me to go and bury my father. But Jesus had said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another had also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus had said to him, 
No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is not actually condemning burying one's father. He's not actually saying, look, you can't go and say goodbye to your loved ones. Jesus is not heartless. Jesus is showing what the priority should be. First and foremost, the kingdom of God. You see, if you pursue the kingdom of God, when the time comes to bury your own father, when the time comes to separate from people, maybe you have to for whatever reason, it will be okay. But if you're doing all these things in your life, and you're not focused on the kingdom of God, that is where it is problematic. Again, Jesus is not condemning the fact that you can't bury your father. We buried a friend recently. Jesus would fully support that we loved him. And third, please turn to Luke chapter 14. Third is the type of person who will make excuses because they know and understand the word. They can invest in your church. They can gain interest from even hearing the word by being present in the audience each Lord's Day. They will hear the invitations for help and assistance. But when it comes time for them to say, I will help, I will give assistance, they do not. Luke chapter 14 the reason they do not is because they place their own lives, their own priorities, ahead of the kingdom of God. And you might remember from the invitation I gave a couple months ago, the king who offers the great feast, Luke chapter 14. But Jesus says to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he had sent out his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they alike began to make excuses. The first one had said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and to look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one had said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one says, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back, and reported all of this to the master. And then the head of the household became very angry and said to his slave, Go at once into the streets, into the lanes of the city, and bring there the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave had said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, but there is still room. And the master had said to the slave, Go into the highways along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. In a way, that's pretty damning, is it not? If we look closely, we understand who the individual slave is and who the groups of slaves are. But what I want to stress with you today, we're looking here in Luke chapter 14, is everyone that makes an excuse. In their mind, the excuse is valid. But if you think you have a valid excuse... Ask yourself, does the Lord agree that my excuse is valid? Don't get me wrong. Jesus is the most compassionate person in all of history. No one will even come close to him. But this is Jesus talking to us. And he points out, look, you have excuses. They're not good enough. My father has set before the whole world a banquet. We've invited you. The king has said, come. Why don't you come? So how do we draw our conclusions from this? <coughs> we compare bad faith to good faith. 
And it's very simple when you think of it. Bad faith is full of excuses. It thinks of oneself. Now, don't get me wrong. You have your own personal interests. Some of them are extremely valid. For example, your personal interest is you got to put food on the table if you have children. That's valid. That's fair. But if you're constantly saying, I have to go to work, and you don't help out at church, that's the issue I'm pointing at. Again, I'm not calling anyone out here, because honestly, I don't know most of your lives. I'm still trying to get to know a lot of you. But the person that thinks of only of themselves, their priorities are wrong. That is the type of faith that cannot save. It's dead, and it literally condemns you. But what about the good faith? The kind of faith that those four men had talked about. And they're not the only four men, but I thought they were good examples for us today to share in. They appreciate the opportunity before them. They appreciate that when you think of how the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Wichita. I, let me ask you this. Go to Jerusalem today. If you ask, I'm from Wichita, they're not going to know what you're talking about. If you tell them I'm from America, okay, they understand America. America's bigger. They understand how America relates. Wichita, extremely rare. But this is the type of faith that appreciates opportunity. And for the gospel of Christ to come literally from Calvary all the way to us today, it's nothing short of a miracle. But it took effort, and we're going to look at that soon. And that good kind of faith is kind, loyal, and just. It humbly obeys God. And that is the kind of faith that James tells us is both alive and well, and that is the faith that saves. So in conclusion today, what are the key takeaways for us? There are two. The first is that James teaches us what proper doing is. The second is showing how our Lord Jesus lived fully and capable of doing what that proper thing was. Now what do you mean? I mean this. Jesus lived his life to perfectly show that his faith in the Father was alive and well each and every day. Now, I'm not telling us that that's our benchmark, but he gives us examples to help us because Jesus has said, you will do greater works than these. Now, you might wonder, what is a greater work than healing the lame? Spreading the gospel. Jesus always knew that the greater work would be to spread his message, to take the invitation we read in Luke chapter 14 and share it with all men. Jesus knows we can't heal blind people. We can't reverse deafness. We can't even cure cancer. He knows this. But a greater work is sharing the message of him and his redemption through the cross to every man, woman, and child. Think of it this way. We know of a lot of commandments in the Bible, but perhaps the most neglected commandment has to do with the sharing of the gospel. You see, what James does is he fleshes out the understanding by showing us in our personal lives what true religion is, what pure and undefiled religion is. Think of it this way. There are types of religion in this world. If you've looked at some of the old churches of, of the Middle East and even of Europe, they're beautiful. They're magnificent. But a lot of their worship is dead. Their worship is full of ritual. Now, here's a key word, liturgy. What does that mean? It's a formula. It's how you practice your worship. It's full of it. How they recite prayers, how they chant, how they sing. Who can sing? 
who can receive the bread, how they can do this, how they can do that. Let's take a look at Catholicism, for example. The priest has to approve that you can get married before you can, especially if you're an outsider. All of that is dead, James shows us. But the true religious pattern in worship is literally, if you believe Jesus, and you say you believe Jesus, you will go and do what Jesus says. The Lord tells us, why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Jesus lived it, James teaches us, so we can relate personally. And you think the finest rituals in life and the finest worship patterns, even the most carefully thought out services, because service does take a lot of planning when you think of it. Even the most elaborate vestments or the magnificent song services pale into the comparison of practical service to both mankind and the Lord. Think of it this way. We can show up each Lord's Day, or we can show up each Lord's Day and share the gospel with our neighbor. Which one do you think is better before the eyes of the Lord? And James, in essence, he condemns what the law and the prophets also had condemned. I brought in Micah today, and, and David is a prophet too, by the way. But James condemns what the law and the prophets had condemned long ago. And we're going to turn over to James here in a second. It's the end of James chapter 1 that we want to look at here together. Let's look at James chapter 1. Look at verse 22 and 23 together. And think on that for a moment. And I'm going to read starting in 25, but look at 22 and 23. And I'll read here. James says, But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, and having become not a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now I mentioned the law and the prophets had condemned this same situation long ago. In the 68th Psalm, we're going to read verse 5, David delights in God's special care for mankind. David writes, he says, Look, a father of the fatherless, a judge for the widows, is God in his holy habitation. Go back to James for a second. Chapter 1, look at verse 27. What does James declare? He says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The term widow in their distress, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the widow exists. The world is full of them. It means the widow that is suffering, the widow that has lost someone. Most often it is their husband. Maybe they've lost a child. Maybe they're suffering with something key in their life that because they are without somebody to help them. James is saying, look, go and help them. Go visit, go help. Know what they're suffering from and help them. Because the opposite is true when you think of it. If you know they need help and you do nothing about it, you are contributing to their oppression. And what about Zechariah? I mentioned the law and the prophets condemn this, but Zechariah does the same thing and he laments. Zechariah, in chapter 7, he laments that the heart of his fellow Israelites is like flint. Now we have the Flint Hills if we go east of here. But for those who know a little bit of geology, what is flint? It's very flaky, right? It's very hard and brittle. And if you tap it, it'll shatter. And he laments the very heart of his, his fellow Israelites. 
the fellow members of his country. He is just frustrated and upset at them. Look at Zechariah chapter 7. We'll look together in verse 6. And he records, he says, Look, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord has proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous along with its cities around it? And the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? And then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah and said, Thus has said the Lord of hosts, Dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion, each one to his brother. Do not oppress the widow, do not oppress the orphan, the stranger, the poor, and do not even devise evil in your hearts against one another. Now it's easy to sit here and look back at the words of Zechariah and say, oh man, those silly Jews, they did it again. But I challenge you this morning, are we doing this? I'm not condemning us because I am not your judge, I am your fellow servant. But if we are honest with ourselves, do we oppress the widow? Do we oppress the stranger? Do we rob the poor? Think of it this way. If you don't share the gospel message with your neighbor, are you not oppressing him in his condition? Think of the message when it was shared for us. Now, I know some of us grew up in the household of faith. But some of us came in from the outside. When the message was shared with us, did we receive it with joy? The answer ought to be yes, we're here together. If we received it with joy, why won't we share it with another? That's the point. And Micah, does he not indict the people for what God requires of man? And as for our brother James, and we have read, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty. It's also known as the law of Christ. But I mentioned we would go through some special examples today. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 9 and we'll have a, a bulk reading together as we wrap up. Matthew chapter 9. You see, the Lord grants us opportunity each and every day. Every day we have breath. Even the littlest things, the Lord, does he not reward bountifully? But the Lord, what could he reward nothing with? What would he give nothing? I think the true answer is nothing. What is there to give the one who does nothing? But look in Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read a block of scripture together. We're going to read what Jesus had did in his life. Let's look at verse 18. And these are very many miracles of healing. They're not all of them, but perhaps they're the most touching. And Jesus tells us while he was saying these things with them, behold, <clears throat> there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her heart and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him, as did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and said to herself, If I can only touch his garment, I will get well. And Jesus, turning and seeing her, he said, Daughter, take courage, your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the official's house and saw the flute players, and the crowd in a noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl is not dead, but is asleep. And they began to laugh at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the news went out into all of the land. 
And as Jesus had passed from there, two blind men had followed him and cried out, Have mercy upon us, son of David. And after he had come into their house, the blind men had come and said to him, Sorry, the blind men had come up to him, and Jesus had said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they had responded, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes and said, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here, let no one know about this. But they went out, and they spread the news about him in all the land. I want to pause there for a moment. Jesus gave them a commandment, and they disobeyed. Jesus said, Go and tell no one. And they ran as quickly as they could. Let me ask you this. Do you think the Lord chastised them for this? It's not recorded for or against. I highly doubt it. But think about it. Look at their faith. They believed that Jesus could do this. And Jesus asked them, do you believe I can do this? They did something. They did something. We'll carry on here together. Look at verse 33. Sorry, 32. And as they were going, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man had spoke, and the multiples had marveled, saying, Nothing like this was ever seen before in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And the multitudes, he had felt compassion for all of them, because they were all distressed. They were, dis- they were downcast, and they were without a shepherd. Then he had said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. When you consider the perspective of the Pharisees, they wanted to destroy the common man. They were happy when a sinner was destroyed. They thought it was purification. What does Jesus do? All of these people here are unclean. All of them are sinners. And he has compassion for each and every one of them. And he does something about it. Jesus' perspective is that no matter who the person is, they have a chance to be saved. As long as the Father has given a person the breath of life, they can be saved. Look at verses 37 and 38 in our reading today. This is a prayer I would submit is often overlooked. Jesus tells the disciples, he ultimately tells us, ask the Father to send workers in to the harvest. This is the same as spreading the gospel. It's not, Lord, go and send my friend who's really good at convincing people. It's not even send our dear friend Sean, because we know he was capable This is to all of us. Lord, send me. How can I do it? You will only ever get good at spreading the gospel as you work at it. He tells the disciples, pray to God that he can send the workers. What the disciples don't get right away when they hear this is that Jesus is literally talking about them. Because they will go into the harvest and they will reap. I mentioned earlier, how do you think the gospel had come to us? After all these years, let's see if I have my map still. There it is. Hopefully it shows up. Is there a laser pointer? There we go. All right, this oddly colored green dot. 
supposed to represent where Israel is, and the lighter color greens is how the gospel extends to the world. It goes from Jerusalem into Europe and into Africa. From Europe, particularly in England, that's where we get most of our faith, comes to us in America. Spain, down into Latin America, South America. Into Africa from Jerusalem, eastward into Asia, and then eventually down into Australia, but that comes from England. If the men who did nothing with their faith sat in the church audience, we wouldn't have the gospel today. Somebody or a group of somebodies had spread the gospel. Look at Paul's missionary journeys, running along the coastlines, various boat rides, thrown in jail, you name it, spreading the gospel. Sharing with joy the growth of people's faith. Have you ever met a newcomer Christian and then years later reflected on their growth as a Christian? It's a very special thing. But without people acting and doing, if they sat on their faith, we'd have nothing. But they went and did something about it. And so, if you're not a Christian today, this message was done to help everyone. Whether you're strong in the faith, whether you're old and wise, or whether you're young and a newcomer, perhaps even for those who simply are unsure. The cross was made for all who may believe in the Father. The cross applies to anyone who wants to believe in God. But the cross will not apply to those who sit and do nothing. You see, a lot of times people use the cross as a magical event where Jesus somehow withheld the entire frustration, the entire anger, the entire wrath of God and prevented it from coming forth. No such thing. The cross was literally God's love for us to show us that we have a way. And you want to test that philosophy? When God gave Noah the rainbow, what did he say? I will never do this again. The cross is much more than holding back the wrath of our Father. And so if you're not a Christian today, if you want to have your sins washed away and live a new life of forgiveness, or maybe your life is not correct, or you want some pointers to help you go forward, well, come forward. The waters of baptism are ready, and join us as together we stand and as we sing.